Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's public lands, where today we are celebrating, or almost celebrating, the news that President Biden is planning to designate a new national monument in Nevada. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver today. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City, Utah. If you missed it earlier this week at the Tribal Nations Summit, Biden announced that his administration will protect roughly 450,000 acres in southern Nevada. The proposed monument is called Avikwame, which is the Mojave name for a sacred mountain at the monument's eastern edge. The monument is supported by the Fort Mojave and 11 other tribes who consider Avikwame to be their place of emergence. The new monument will connect more than a dozen wilderness and conservation areas, providing continuous habitat and migration corridors for wildlife, including bighorn sheep and desert tortoise. It was proposed in part due to threats of large-scale solar and wind development in the region, but it's important to remember there are still millions of acres of federal land open to solar and wind across Nevada, and both green energy and land protection will, of course, play an important role in keeping the climate and nature crisis at bay. One other note here, we are going to take President Biden at his word that he will sign this monument proclamation soon, looks like maybe in January, but the ink, as they say, is not dry on this just yet. And that brings us to our interview today, which is about the many opportunities President Biden has to protect more nature. We've got Drew McConville and Sam Zeno from the Center for American Progress here to talk about their new report, which identifies the top eight actions Biden can take to meet his goal of protecting 30% of American lands and waters by 2030. Drew McConville is a senior fellow at CAP and a former member of the White House Council on Environmental Quality, where he helped develop and implement President Obama's climate action plan. Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kim. And Sam Zeno is a conservation research assistant at CAP who worked on the report. Sam, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So you guys just published this report, but before we get to that, um, let's start with how much progress President Biden has made so far on his 30 by 30 goal. Can you break it down and maybe like give us just rough percentages, how far we have to go, stuff like that? Well, it depends how you count, but uh, the U.S. Geological Survey data shows us the U.S. really at about 13% of uh, U.S. lands lands protected uh, with, through durable conservation measures. So uh, there is a, a ways to go to reach that 30% mark. Uh, I think the, the good news is um, President Biden has made progress in restoring a lot of the damage that was done by the Trump administration. He's done a lot of good work to rebuild a lot of the agency capacity that's really going to be needed to, to manage our public lands effectively. Uh, and he's brought in a really strong team to, to get this work done. And he, um, he's begun to take some really strong proactive steps. We saw uh, conservation measures uh, taken in uh, up in Alaska to protect the Tongass uh, and really to not just restore the damage that was done there by President Trump, but to uh, take some new actions uh, in terms of curbing logging of old growth forests, for example. And very recently, you've seen him begin to use his uh, pen to designate national monuments, as we just talked about at the top of the call, so or at the top of the show. Um, so we are encouraged uh, that we're seeing a real uh, pivot towards uh, urgent action by President Biden and real proactive uh uh, real proactive measures when it comes to conservation. But I think 
really, uh, we're going to learn an awful lot about whether he can keep his 30 by 30 goal within reach in the coming months here, because uh, it takes time to get these actions done. And the clock is really ticking. I'd second that he has, the administration as a whole has really shown their commitment to, um, to conservation and to environmental justice uh, thus far. But really the catalyst for this report series with the, is that there is so much to be done. How, you mentioned at the top, Drew, there, that uh, part of the question is how you measure progress. And the administration, we think at some point, is going to produce an atlas laying out how exactly they're going to measure 30 by 30. How big is a, of a concern is it that we have not yet seen that atlas? Yeah, the atlas matters. It matters that we're measuring and holding uh, our, you know, ourselves accountable to meeting this national goal. You know, on the other hand, I think there's a real danger in getting too wrapped around the axle around what counts uh, and having that become more divisive, for example, than it needs to be, or just more time consuming. So uh, I'm personally less concerned uh, about exactly how that comes out as much as moving past the stage of, of uh, figuring out how we measure and actually making some concrete progress. And the good news from our report is uh, that President Biden really has those opportunities in front of him. Right. Progress is progress. Acres protected are acres protected. So let's go ahead and move to your report um, or the actual meat of it, I guess. The first two items on the list in the report are pretty self-explanatory. Like I was just talking about, designate more land monuments and designate more marine monuments. What's the likelihood that we'll see more monuments in 2023? And what are some of the monuments on the table? So we have a list of uh, 16 national monument and marine sanctuary sites that have had years of community advocacy um, to be designated as uh, monuments and as marine sanctuaries. Uh, These sites are ripe for um, designation and have even at a number of them, including Castle Range and El Paso, Texas, have been visited by um, Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland. Uh, We've seen the commitment from the administration, um, not only that these national monuments can be designated and there's an interest in them being designated, um, but also that the administration's truly prioritizing designating sites that tell a greater history of um, our country and tell a more diverse history and also make nature more accessible to communities that are uh, nature deprived. What are some of those monuments on your list? Our top five monuments on the list include Avikwame Kastner Range, the Springfield Race Riot Site, the Emmett Till and Mammy Till Mobley site, and Black Wall Street. I think I'd be remiss in not saying, you know, we don't want to, we don't pick, want to pick favorites among the proposals um, out there. You know, we've highlighted and are tried to lift up a lot of um, opportunities that have been brought forward by communities where they're specifically asking for national monument designations. I think we'll probably see more. Uh, opportunities coming up as well. Um, I think the message is there are a number there there are a number of ripe and ready opportunities for the president to act, um, and as as Sam said, to really make good on this commitment to expand um, both the protections our public lands have, but also the the real histories that are being told um, by our public lands. So it's, it's exciting. So next up. On the list, we've got conserving high-value Bureau of Land Management lands 
through rulemaking and planning. And I think that ends up being a bit of a two-parter. Number one, how do you define what is high value? And then number two, what is that rulemaking and planning process and how much can they realistically get done in, say, the next two years? That's a that's a good question. I mean, let's start with where we are right now, which is, you know, the Bureau of Land Management is the largest land manager in the country. Um, you know, it manages, what, almost 250 million acres of, of federal lands. Those, uh, you know, 90% of BLM lands are open to oil and gas drilling right now. So it also means that the recreation opportunities, the cultural sites, uh, sacred lands, uh, the wildlife corridors on those lands are, you know, at risk. And our BLM lands are some of the most threatened, really, lands that we have in, in the country as a result of just being open to the highest bidder, essentially. Um, you know, and uh, what, you know, the flip side of that is they represent the largest, you know, at least one of the largest opportunities we have to make conservation gains. Um, and so 90% of those lands are open to oil and gas drilling. And we really don't have, uh, throughout the history of BLM lands, we haven't seen uh, a comprehensive direction through rulemaking, uh, really much else on how those lands should be conserved for future generations, which is part of the mission and mandate of legal mandate of BLM. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity to do that. I think Aaron, you're asking, you know, is there, what can they realistically get done? Um, you know, I think we've seen actions already from BLM that are beginning to uh, prioritize uh, the, you know, some of the conservation and cultural uh, values and opportunities we've seen, um, you know, policies rolled out by Secretary Holland and, and BLM directing uh, the agencies to prioritize co-management opportunities with with uh, tribes. Uh, and, and so we've seen some really good action, but I think what we hope to see is some really uh, more durable direction through rulemaking uh, on that will then guide uh, how those lands actually uh, get managed. And yes, it's it's many values we're talking about. It's recreation opportunities, it's sacred sites, it's cultural sites, it's uh, what key wildlife habitat. Um, and the the data is there uh, to show, um, you know, the places that clearly should not be on the table for development and should be a priority for conservation. Uh, but there needs to be direction from really the leadership of the agencies. Uh, and we hope to see that. Hey, Drew, can you just explain what rulemaking is in the context of the BLM for folks who may not understand or know about that? Yeah, I think there's different ways that the federal government can uh, establish policy that guide, in this case, the management of of all those hundreds of millions of acres. Um, you know, there are regulations in place, rules, rulemakings or regulations, we say, in place that guide, you know, how do you hold a lease sale? You know, on, on these lands. Um, there's a lot of different ways that BLM could go about you know, accomplishing what we hope they will. Um, we lift up rulemaking because it has some, uh, it has a very thorough process. Regulations require public input. They require a really thorough, non-arbitrary um, process by the agencies to put those things in place. Uh, and it comes with a level of transparency, but also legal durability that you you know, it's, it's harder to wipe them off the table 
uh, on day one of the next administration, for example. So uh, we think there's a real opportunity to do that. We highlight the same for the Forest Service, uh, an opportunity there. Um, but I think what we also highlight is that you need some of that uh, agency level policy cemented and direction that actually you know, implements the legal mandate that is unmet. Um, but you also need the funding and the, frankly, the will to do the planning uh, on the ground that turns that into actual protections that matter for, for wildlife, for cultural sites and more. So, it, yeah, it sounds like uh, it's maybe uh, harder than it sounds or easier said than done. <laughs> um, just make some rules, guys. Come on. Um, but actually, it's a whole process. Well, you you mentioned the um, rulemaking in terms of the Forest Service. So let's go there next. Um, you have that on your list. Uh, you have issuing a national forest climate rule and conserving old forests across public lands. Um, what would a national forest climate rule, rule, excuse me, a national forest climate rule be? Like, what, what does that mean? Yeah. And I think, again, there's multiple... Uh, opportunities, really, when it comes to our national forests. President Biden already signed an executive order on Earth Day of this year that really lifted up the opportunity to conserve old growth forest and uh, older mature for uh, natural national forest lands. Uh, same actually applies to BLM forests as well. Uh, and that direction really required the agency to inventory what they what they have in terms of old growth mature forests but then come up with real policy solutions um, to to take advantage of that opportunity you won't be surprised to hear that big old old growth stands are powerhouses when it comes to conserving carbon um, but these are also places uh, along with other parts of our national forests that are huge when it comes to protecting watersheds that um, provide the clean water to our communities uh, that provide key wildlife habitats. So there's a lot to be uh, captured as well in what the Forest Service can do. I think the key is they they have to get going. They have to make it a priority. And fortunately, President Biden has given some direction uh, earlier this year that we should see bear fruit. Drew, why don't you think that the Forest Service has done more on this, given that Biden did, you know, ask them to do something. Yeah, I think the the Forest Service has done um, a, have done a really good job on a lot of fronts. You know, I would point to um, what they did up in Southeast Alaska. I, I mentioned this, I think, earlier, but, you know, they are rolling back uh, a really egregious um, attempt to open up roadless areas of the Tongass, of America's rainforest uh, up in Alaska. Um, but they are scaling back um, a potential old growth logging up there. And they're very you know, intentionally doing this in a way that is uh, going to be good for the communities up there. They're investing you know, tens of millions of dollars in community development to go along with that to support sustainable economic growth in that region. And so, uh, you know, I give my hat hat tip to, to the Forest Service, really, for what they're doing there. They're obviously very busy uh, with the wildfire crises we're seeing play out on international forests, uh, on our forested lands. And so um, I think there's certainly more work uh, to do. Um, but 
And I think time really will tell, you know, where this stacks up in terms of, are they going to get the job done? Um, and is the president going to get to meet that part of his commitment? I think one of the takeaways already talking to you two is that there are a lot of federal agencies in play here and working with all of them is everyone's a, a special sunflower in their way. And one of the, the other recommendations here is to create and expand national wildlife refuges. So now we're talking about the fish and wildlife service. Uh, we had a, a podcast a few months ago on a proposed refuge in Riverside County, California, Sam, can you walk us through how creating or expanding a refuge actually works and and how that is can be done via executive action versus waiting for legislation? Absolutely. You know, interestingly, uh, 500 of the 568 units of the wildlife refuge system were uh, established via administrative action, not by acts of wow. Congress. I did not realize that. Absolutely. So huh. It, the Secretary of the Interior has the authority under multiple laws to expand the National Wildlife Refuge System. And there are countless proposals, uh, locally led site proposals. And this is truly the only federal land designation focused primarily on wildlife conservation. But it can also serve, and what I think is one of the most beautiful things about this uh, phenomenal report, is that every accomplishment in reaching and achieving um, 30 by 30 is that it's completely intersectional in the administration's priorities. So in creating more wildlife refuges, there's also the very high likelihood of increasing access for nature-deprived communities. And this administration has demonstrated their commitment to equity. Um, and this can even include designating and expanding urban wildlife refuges. I, I want to ask geographically, we're focused, CWP is focused obviously on the West, but a lot of the biodiversity hotspots in the U.S. are in places like the Southeast, where you don't have vast swaths of BLM land, of course. Uh, is fish and wildlife and wildlife refuges, do they become even more important as you head East in the country? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think someone being a from the from the east side of the country, we don't have as many uh, park sites, but we have a lot of protected lands and uh, refuges, just as one example, are, um, I think if you map out the United States and you view all of our protected lands, you'll see the connectivity, even if things are not named the same thing, we're providing these wildlife connectivity across, um, across states and across communities. Uh, so I think that's the beautiful thing about these systems is is that they being done even on the east side of the country are having a massive impact for uh, for communities and for ecosystems. Cool. So I have a feeling that this one might also come down to rulemaking, but I'm going to ask anyways. Um, on your list, you have withdrawing sensitive and sacred lands from future drilling and mining. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and ask, how would President Biden do that, knowing the answer will probably be rulemaking? Yeah, it's not actually rulemaking. Oh, <laughs> so amazing. It, it's a, um, so this is one where the federal lands, what is it? Oh, federal land policy management. FLIPMA. FLIPMA. Um, hopefully I didn't get that acronym wrong and all my former colleagues are cringing. Um, but FLIPMA gives the secretary the authority to withdraw lands, uh, including, you know, uh, from from certain uh, uses, but including mineral uh, development. And so it's not a there is a process that they have to go through. But it's not a rulemaking. Uh, what generally happens, uh, and, and this is one of the cool things about it, is um, the secretary can immediately put lands off limits 
to new drilling, uh, new mining claims. Uh, it's called a, um, a segregation uh, through a segregation that is can last two years. Um, the lands can be temporarily off limits while giving the department the time to go through and do the analysis that they need to do. They have to do NEPA analysis um, uh, to evaluate, you know, the impacts to um, of protection or leaving leaving the area open. And the secretary can then, um, after a proposed and final uh, desi- um, uh, withdrawal, uh, those lands can be off limits for up to twenty years, um, and then the twenty years can. Uh, after 20 years, they can be renewed as well. That was kind of a long answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, but, but, but it's good to know that everything has a process and all of these processes are different and it's going to take a lot of different work to, to make these happen. And and of course, then that brings us to Alaska, where everything works different in Alaska, because none of these laws that we just <laughs> talked about, well, not none of them, but there are a bunch of different laws that apply in Alaska. And you have on the list uh, – pursuing indigenous-led conservation opportunities for BLM lands in Alaska. And that brings up yet another acronym, ANILCA, the Alaska National oh, Interest Land that. Conservation that acronym. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so so what protections need to be pursued there and and how important is it there to, to let indigenous-led conservation opportunities be the primary driver. Yeah. And on this one, we talked to a number of the groups that are really based and working in Alaska who, uh, you know, lifted this opportunity and need up for us. And um, what happened, you know, Anilka, which you talked about, um, put the Bureau of Land, a number of these Bureau of, um, you know, 50 million acres of uh, Bureau of Land Management lands in Alaska off limits. They were with that same terminology withdrawn. Um, so they were off limits for mining. Uh, Trump administration uh, threw um, an action by Secretary Bernhardt, I believe it was, took, uh, you know, lifted um, protections for 28 million acres or attempted to do so. So the Biden administration came in and said, hold up, um, <laughs> uh, we're, we're not going to follow through on that. Uh, and right now they're in a they're in a public comment process. Um, and the cool thing is this public comment process, yes, is an opportunity to, to res- roll back the protect, uh, roll back the clock, restore protections for these lands that have lost protection, but it's also an opportunity to gather input from uh, communities, from stakeholders, and uh, in particular, Alaska Native tribes and communities uh, on what the conservation of and the future of the lands uh, really should be uh, that makes sense. And so um, you'd want to talk to the folks up in Alaska um, and Alaska Native communities directly, but there's a number of um, ideas and, and proposals, I think, that are coming, that are being surfaced through that public comment process. And BLM has an opportunity to restore protections, but also hopefully identify some opportunities for for active co-management and really some of the type of indigenous-led, indigenous partnering, you know, conservation that Secretary Holland has said um, ought to be a priority, and we agree. So that brings us to the end of your list, which is, of course, funding. Um, All of this stuff takes time and manpower, and that takes money. Um, Sam, what funding is out there and how can the Biden administration leverage it to get some of the things on this list, uh, moving? 
So we have had some historic funding for climate and conservation, of course, through the Inflation Reduction Act. And um, this, as well as other uh, really significant uh, grant opportunities, such as the um, NIFWIF, um, America the Beautiful um, grants that recently were announced, which funneled even more money than anyone um, really expected, $91 billion um, to community projects, as well as to a lot of tribes. Um, So these really significant, really historic funding opportunities that are coming through this administration, not only are demonstrating their commitment to getting these projects done, but they're providing even further opportunities to imagine and reimagine how conservation can look and exist on community levels and scales. Um, So of course, it's uh, absolutely a capacity project for uh, state and local communities to figure out how to leverage these funding opportunities, but it's a really great thing to have to figure out, I think. Yeah, I think I think you got it right on the head, Sam. I think um, one of the exciting things about uh, the IRA funding and the infrastructure funding that's out there is, um, you know, we talked earlier in the show about all of the opportunities on our federal lands, uh, but we're not going to reach thirty by thirty just by conserving federal lands, and so there's a really uh, untapped opportunity on private lands. And some of that money um, from these bills that now the administration's in the process of figuring out how they're going to get it out the door and use it effectively, uh, some of that can really support meaningful, durable conservation on private lands and hopefully catalyze um, more investment from, from the private sector, from states. Uh, and, you know, I think the the grant program Sam lifted up is a really good one, and we'd really love to see the American Beautiful Challenge grants. Um, it's a, it's an innovative approach, and we'd really love to see that grow and to see um, uh, private philanthropy and others really stepping up to to amplify that impact and take the impact of this to the next level. I think I guess one other thing I'll flag if you can cut it if you don't want it. <laughs> one other thing I would flag is. Um, um, IRA um, provided a lot of funding for conservation programs that are uh, traditionally part of the Farm Bill. Uh, And I think there's a real opportunity and a need for uh, USDA, Department of Agriculture, to um, take the bull by the horns and demonstrate that demonstrate the success of those programs and these new investments, which are targeted to conservation and climate, um, and show uh, then going into these next farm bill uh, negotiations that we should keep and grow and expand that type of investment, um, because we really think that's critical to meeting this ambitious national conservation goal we're all excited about. Last question. The the entire basis of this report or inspiration perhaps is that Congress is going to have trouble getting anything done. We've got a Republican House coming in that by most appearances right now is going to have trouble picking a speaker for themselves, much less passing any legislation. So what does that mean for the folks at home, for someone who is not sitting in Washington, listening to this, thinking, wow, this all sounds great. It needs to happen. But if Congress isn't doing anything, what can I do? How can the American people be encouraging or get involved in any of this? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great point. And uh, truly, throughout um, this administration thus far, there has even been um, bogged and waterlogged uh, Congress over initial Build Back Better and navigating the passage of the IRA. Um, So this executive action has always been key. But of course, going forward in the Biden administration, this is going to be um, possibly the only opportunity to be uh, achieving 30 by 30. And I would say that people in their communities, I mean, they're really the basis of conservation. We wouldn't have been able to have provided this uh, executive action top eight report without all of the community action and support that goes into each of these different uh, proposals, different campaigns, um, and different sites that folks are uplifting. We see these uplifted opportunities via social media. Um, I personally really love to watch videos of of people on their local lands and hear them talking about why it matters to them and the stories of them growing up. And it's really impactful. And we all have really amazing stories in association with land. And that's probably what got us here in the first place. And when folks share those stories, it really resonates and it really, it goes a long way. So I think the more that people can take their experiences and show the value of them to the folks that are making decisions, speak to their representatives, send out messages, uh, tell their friends about these things that matters to that matter to them and get them involved. It makes a big difference, even if you can't feel it right away. And even if these things take time, um, we are moving. <laughs> yeah. And, and to build on what Sam just said, make sure that leaders in Washington are hearing from you and hearing about those stories. So I don't let Congress off the hook. They've got a job to do. Uh, and even though we may, we're pessimistic about what can get done, uh, there's still opportunity uh, and they need to hear um, from us or they're not going to uh, change the um, trajectory of, of congressional designations. And then, you know, when President Biden and his administration are doing the right thing and doing things that are exciting, uh, they need to they need to know that it's po- uh, popular um, and we on the outside who care, uh, need to make sure that, um, that, that gets told and heard. And, you know, he set a pretty ambitious goal, uh, for himself on the campaign trail. And if he's not making that kind of progress, I think they need to hear that, that too. So there's absolutely a, a role, um, uh, and that the, that everybody can be playing here, uh, to make your voices heard and tell those stories that Sam's talking about in a way that has some real, you know, political impact. Totally. Yeah. I love that answer. Cause it really, um, we've been talking about policy, which is so vague, but, but really what we're talking about is protecting, you know, pieces of land that exist that people go to and recreate on. And I'm just thinking about our postcards project where we've been making videos about potential monuments, um, or wildlife refuges. And, you know, we can't, we cannot, tell those stories unless people in their communities tell them first. We we just amplify the voices of people who care about um, the nature around them. So yeah, I just love that. I think that's a great place to wrap up unless you guys have anything to add. I don't have anything to add, but thank you so much for having us. These are important conversations to have. And um, while it's not an exhaustive list, we're glad to have been able to put out this list and hopefully we can see more executive action on conservation being taken in the near future. Totally. Well, um, Drew, Sam, 
both of you are with the Center for American Progress, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Well, that's all for today, folks. If you've got suggestions for a future episode or feedback for us, you can email podcast at westernpriorities.org. Thanks again to Sam Zeno and Drew McConville for joining us. We've got a link to their report from the Center for American Progress in the show notes. And thank you so much for listening to The Landscape. Landscape.